congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I, in the past, talked with my catechism students about the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformed Churches, then one of the differences that came up was that the Roman Catholic Church has priests, and we, the Reformed Churches, do not have priests. And then I explained that this is because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins is not quite enough, not quite sufficient. And that therefore Christ needed to be sacrificed every day in the Mass. And of course you all know, and maybe the kids among us don't, but the Mass is the Roman Catholic version of the Lord's Supper. We have that every day. Every day Christ gets sacrificed, according to Roman Catholic teaching. And so in order to, to bring a sacrifice, you need a priest. And therefore the Roman Catholic Church has priests. We in the Reformed Churches don't have priests because we believe that according to the, to the Bible, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was enough. Once and for all, Jesus Christ brought the perfect sacrifice for all the sins of all of his people and nothing else is needed. Speaking about the Lord Jesus, Hebrews 7 verse 27 says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. For his own, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. Since he did, and here it is, once and for all, when he offered up himself. Now, true as this is, to say that we as Reformed churches do not have priests at all, that's not entirely true either. We do have a high priest. We believe that Jesus Christ is our only high priest. The Bible says he is our only high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who's, who had no beginning and no descendants. We can read about that in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. You can read a lot about that Melchizedek and how the Lord Jesus was a priest in, according to his order. And when we also learn then that when we read that, that Christ is not only our high priest, but that he is also king, just as Melchizedek was king of Salem. So Jesus Christ is our king and our priest, and he is our sacrifice all at the same time. He brought the perfect sacrifice for our sins as high priest, and he could do that because he himself was God and not a sinner. But at the same time, he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins because just as we are, he was truly man, but without sin. Truly God, truly man. And therefore able to satisfy God's terrible wrath over our sins. And so we also, we, we also believe that he is the king of our church, of the church, this is his church. 
And to him is giving all authority in heaven and on earth. And that is how now our Lord Jesus Christ functions at the right hand of his Father in heaven. As our high priest, his eternal high priest, and our eternal king. So once more, our Lord Jesus Christ is our king, he is our priest, and he is the perfect sacrifice. And as such, he earns awesome things, benefits, it is called in our article. He earned that for us, for his people. He earned for us complete salvation. He earned for us complete forgiveness of all of our sins. He earned for us perfect righteousness and eternal life. But now the question becomes, how do his people, who are still sinners, still unable to do any good and inclined to all evil, how do do they get hold of those awesome things, those great benefits that Christ has earned for them? And, and that's what our article this afternoon is about. With article 16 and 20, we confess with the, with the Belgian Confession that God the Father, what, what God the Father did for our salvation. He chose us, he gave us his son, and he sent his son into the world to suffer the penalty for our sins, so to save us. And in article 21, we confess what God the Son did. He came, he sacrificed himself for our sins, he gained victory over death and hell, and so earned complete salvation for us. But since we are saved by a triune God, the three persons of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in whatever God does. So we'll this afternoon look at what God the Holy Spirit does for our salvation, and we do not do that under the team that by God the Holy Spirit given true faith embraces Christ. And then first we look at why we need true faith, and then we look at what the true faith consists, and then what true faith does. So first, why do we need true faith? So here are all those great benefits our Lord Jesus Christ has earned for us complete salvation forgiveness of all of our sins perfect righteousness everlasting life and all this that is so of course so most wonderful and worthy of all praise and adoration but how do we God's people take possession of those benefits how do we get them Well, when God provides food for us, he not only gives us food, but he also has given us hands to pick it up and a mouth to taste it and eat it so that we are nourished by it and we can enjoy its flavors. When God provides beautiful flowers, he gives us eyes to see them and a nose to smell them so that we are able to enjoy the flowers. And the same thing with the beautiful sounds 
God's creation makes, God gave us ears to hear the songs of the birds and, and beautiful music. It's his ears to hear the murmur of the wind through the leaves of the trees and the breaking of the waves upon the shore. He also gives us the sense of touch so that we are able to feel and enjoy the softness of a baby's skin and the comfort of a hand on your shoulder. All these senses God gave us so that we are able to enjoy, to take to ourselves the things that he has provided for us. But the thing is, we cannot see, we cannot hear, taste, smell forgiveness of sins or righteousness or everlasting life. We cannot with our hands grasp salvation. So again, how does God enable us to take the things that Christ has earned for us to ourselves? Well, it's actually simple. He gives us an extra sense. In a way, you could say that God gives to all his people an extra and sixth sense. And this sixth sense is what we read about in the first sentence of our article of this afternoon. It says, we believe that in order that we may obtain, in, or that means to take to ourselves the true knowledge of this great mystery of salvation, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts through faith. See that? There is that sixth sense. is through faith. And just as with, we, with our hand we touch, and with our mouth we eat and taste, with our eyes we see, so with our faith we believe. And that is why the author of the Belgian Confession, Guido de Bray, in article 35, calls faith the hand and the mouth of the soul. So the Holy Spirit kindles in our heart. He can also gives us true faith. And with a true faith, we can believe. And by believing, we take everything that Christ has earned for us to ourselves. So that, that answers then the first question. Why do we need faith? True faith. We need faith because with our faith, we are able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he has done for us. By the true faith, we believe all that God has revealed to us who he is, and what we are, and all God's warning, and all God's promises. All this, by the true faith kindled in our heart, by God the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And the beauty of it is, that he, the Holy Spirit just doesn't kindle that faith in our heart, and then leave it all up to us to, to keep it alive. No, he stays with it. That's why in Lord's Day 20 of our catechism, we, we confess that the Holy Spirit is also given to me, never to leave us again. So when we speak about a true faith, we, we also speak about the Holy Spirit who keeps at work with a true faith in our heart. So our faith increases.
But to be sure, it's true that even people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not believe that there is a God, do believe something. They do have faith in something. But it is a faith that is blind and, and, and lame. It is a faith that is not able to discern and to grasp the truth. Many people believe in many things. They believe, for example, in a man's capability to create world peace. Well, if man was capable of that, we would have had world peace for thousands of years already, but it isn't there. They believe that they are able to, uh, to put a stop to the climate change. They believe in the endless resourcefulness of science. In the ability of science to solve all problems. They believe in the power of nature. And so we can go on. People believe in lots of things. And so you can, also, you can say that all people have faith. You need to have faith, they say. You need to have faith in, in yourselves. You have to need to have faith in, in good luck, in, in positive thinking, whatever. But you need to have faith in something, of course. Of course they do, because there are way too many mysteries that they cannot explain. So they need to have faith in something. Well, you feel it already. That's not by a long shot the faith that the Holy Spirit gives to his people. And that's also why your article says that the Holy Spirit gives through faith. Meaning, it is a faith that enables you to believe in someone or something that is absolutely and always and everywhere true. And you, cannot, you can simply not claim this about all the other things that other people have faith in. They have faith all right, but they have no true faith. Their faith, as their sixth sense, is misleading them to believe in things that are not true. Just like someone with bad hearing is misled to believe that everybody is so quiet. Or someone who just burned his mouth is misled to believe that nothing tastes right. See, senses are off. And that's with their faiths the same. True faith has its source in the truth. And the truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So one more time. We need true faith. Because without, without true faith, as a sixth sense, we believe. And by believing, we take the benefits Christ had gained for us, the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life to ourselves. So true faith is a wonderful gift given by the wonderful Holy, God, the Holy Spirit. Let's now see in our second point of what that true faith consists
And that is again for mechanicism students not a difficult question to answer because they really know the answer of question and answer 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism very well. And they know this question because I give them a whole week to memorize only that answer. It is one of the key questions in the Heidelberg Catechism and I wanted them to, I wanted to know it so well that if they ask the question, what is true faith, the answer rolls like peas out of a can, so out of the mouth. Super important that they know that. True faith, it says, is a sure knowledge. That's knowledge of something that's absolutely true. So a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm, confident, and hearty trust, you may also say, that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation only for the sake of Christ's merits, only for the sake of Christ's works. And then this closes, this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. So in short, true faith is a sure knowledge, it's the knowledge of something that is absolutely true, and a firm confidence or a hearty trust. In all the translation of our version of our catechism, it said hearty trust. I like the better. Heart is involved. Well, our article of this afternoon says the same thing in just a different way. It says that this true faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him our own and does not seek anything besides him. Just as the Apostle Peter said in Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which he must be saved. See this? The embracing of Christ and all his benefits highlight that firm confidence, the, the hearty trust our catechism speaks about. It's, it explains it as an embracing of Jesus Christ. True faith won't desire anything else but Jesus. That does, of course, not mean that all the benefits are not important. But you can't separate Jesus from the benefits that he earned. They come together, always. Now the word embracing also points to, to our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. For the believer does not seek anything else beside him. He's totally focused upon him. He embraces Jesus. That means that he draws him to his heart. Just as Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 4, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And, and Asaph in Psalm 73 says, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Embracing Jesus Christ. 
People sometimes say, keep an eye on Jesus. No, totally focused upon him. Not just keeping one eye on him. See, brothers and sisters, this, the, by the Holy Spirit, were kindled. And love motivating faith embraced Christ. And that embracing, the truly embracing, taking him to yourself, pressing him to your heart, that makes all the difference between a true believer and a nominal Christian. There are many nominal Christians that are church members. There are people that grow up in a church and intellectually are able to discuss Jesus Christ and the salvation provided by him at length and at great detail, very accurately. They may be able to, to, to tell you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and so on. Without it ever touches their heart. You see, that's not an embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not even a handshake. Just words. Embracing him is holding onto him for dear life because he is your only savior. You want him and you desire nothing else. And the love of your heart keeps on yearning until you have him in your embrace. Is that all of you know him and need him and with the love of your heart embrace him. He is the only complete savior. Let no one or anything or ever convince you that whatever you do or don't do is somehow necessary for your salvation. Jesus is it all. And our article rightly point out that to think so would be a terrible blasphemy. Just imagine, God gave his only begotten son to die for your sin. And God the son came and suffered unimaginable humiliation, agony, pain, sorrow and death. Because that was the only way that he could save you and satisfy God's yad and justice. And then to suggest that somehow anything that we sinners could do would be important and help. Whatever we do to help save us is just the same as picking up the fig leaves that Adam and Eve needed to drop because they couldn't hide them before God. It's just as futile. And no, you don't have to be a Roman Catholic or an Armenian to believe that you must do something yourself in order to, to, to be saved or to remain saved. Because this very notion, the urge to do something, the idea that something else must help, that, that idea is in all people, also in us, in the reformed people. Did you ever have it that you, did, that you were tempted to do something about which you knew that it was downright sinful? And then and you knew it, and you did it anyway, and then your conscience accused you, yes, and you felt real bad, you felt real bad sinner have that I hope you did now what did you do did you immediately 
Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, just as you were. And beg him to forgive you. Or was it because of shame or some little voice or little feeling in you? That you didn't feel really free to pray to the Lord right away. But then after a day or two, that you did do extra your best. You felt ready to pray again and maybe even to ask the Lord for forgiveness. What were you thinking? That time erases sin. Or that when you have lived proper for a few days, that it wears off the sharp edges of your sin in God's sight. Or were you thinking that after you have been sorry for a few days, you somehow are more acceptable to the Lord? They are all fake leaves, are they not? Get rid of your pride. Immediately, immediately flee to Jesus, just as you are then, just as dirty and filthy and, and, and full of shame because of what you did. Now flee to him. Confess what you did. And by your true faith, so embrace him and don't find him to be a compassionate savior. You know, if there is ever a time to really embrace Jesus Christ with all your strength, it is then when you feel that you're a sinner and that you don't feel that you're able to pray, for that's the time that the devil is nudging you towards hell. Wake up. Immediately. That is embracing Christ. That is putting your whole faith in him. He only can wash you clean from the dirt that you just sinned upon yourself. So true faith consists of two things. It consists, as you just saw, of that hearty trust, that embracing, that forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. And the great love for your Savior is given also to you. And it also consists of a sure knowledge of all that God has revealed in his word. Because true faith is never blind faith. It is based upon a knowledge of something that's absolutely sure. What, what, whatever God tells us in his word is just true. Now why is it then so hard to believe? Because the content of that knowledge of that faith, of that gospel, is on the one hand so very foolish to unbelievers and also to our old nature. But on the other hand, it is so wonderful, almost too wonderful for God's people to believe it. That's why it's so important that we hold on to that word, that embracing, hold on to him. Hold on to him. Just cling it to him. Well, let's now see in our last point what this faith does. Our article makes it quite clear. What exactly does the faith do and what it doesn't do? That's why our article uh, says the following about it. We sometimes speak of, of saving faith. And then we actually do mean true faith. 
And our article says, meanwhile, strictly or accurately speaking, we do not mean that faith justifies us, faith saves us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. Faith is only the instrument. So to speak strictly or accurately, there is no such thing as saving faith. Then we But there is that true faith that embraces your Savior. You see, of someone who is drowning and puts his arms around a lifesaver, you can hardly say that he is saving arms. Because before that lifesaver was there, his arms were not saving him at all. And so, faith is our arms. Our article rightly says that faith is only the instrument, the arms by which we embrace Christ. But he is the Savior. And when we so in love embrace him, believe in him, then our article tells us he imputes to us his merits. That means that he accredits to us, he gives to us everything that he has earned. Everything. As many holy works as he has done for us and in our place, says our article. And on the third day, God the Father raised his son from the dead. Then he thereby testified that Jesus Christ Christ was indeed perfectly righteous. And it is this perfect righteousness that Christ imputes, gives to those who by their true faith embrace him. The answer of question 60 of our catechism is another one of those that all my catechism students need to know very well because it expresses this so very well. We all should know this answer completely off by heart. Maybe most of you do, but if not, memorize it. It's awesome. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. See, embracing him. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone to always to all evil, yet God, without any merit, without any good thing of mine, out of pure grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ as if he had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. If only with our faith we embrace Christ. This, then all that whole answer is completely true for all of us. Never mind what our conscience tells us. Therefore, our article so rightly says, therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He came for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience for us. He suffered God's eternal wrath and curse for us. He rose from the dead and defeated the power of death and grave for us. 
He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, executing God's authority in heaven and on earth for us. He's ever interceding for us. He always continues to prepare a place for us. Ever working towards that fate, that day that, that he may return to get us. To take us to himself. So that we may be where he is. He always wanted to so much to be one with us. And our true faith, it keeps us with him in communion, in possession of all his benefits. What an awesome gift God the Holy Spirit kindles in our heart. The true faith. This faith will ever increase our love for him. It will always propel us closer to him. It will strive to become more and more like him. It will make us hope for his coming and for our completed salvation. And then that true faith will be replaced with the seeing of the one in whom we have believed. Then all our hopes are fulfilled. And then endless and undisturbed we will answer his love with ours. Now remain faith hope and love but the greatest of thee is love because love is forever Amen